This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. It's no shock that many of us are giving away our personal information, our personally identifiable information, our zip codes, our addresses, our social security numbers, and sprawling amounts of our own personal identities away to the internet. It's, for many of us, how the 21st century functions. For some of us that listen to news almost exclusively through podcasts, the very concept of just scrolling through a terms of service in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher is commonplace, second nature. In fact, many of us don't even read the fine print. So what does it actually mean to live a private life in the 21st century? And in an era in which we examine how American identity is shifting in real time, how do we really claim an identity that in many respects we don't even really want to be revealed to the rest of our world or our peers around us? Most recently, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was under the scrutiny of federal regulators when it was revealed that in their partnership, their commercial partnership with Cambridge Analytica, data privacy protection rules really seemed non-existent or non-apparent. 87 million users of the social media platform had their personal information revealed, unpackaged, sold, and repurposed for private use and commercial use. But in many respects, one has to ask, how do the terms and services that we so often gloss over when we scroll down and opt in for the latest app, the latest ability to ride a scooter in our city, or frankly, the latest social media hot trend, how do we actually capture how that information and how that use case may eventually be exploited down the road when we haven't even figured out what that exploitation looks like? The concept of data privacy, where its vulnerabilities lie, and how much should really be ours is evolving in real time. But core to that debate has been the exposure of the vulnerabilities to begin with. That's why today on American Enough, we have an incredibly special episode featuring Brittany Kaiser, an alumni of Cambridge Analytica and one of the whistleblowers that came out to both regulators in the EU and the United States to declare where they found the loopholes to actually be and where the most exploitative vulnerabilities are for such a sprawling and vast media network like Facebook. Drilling down not just on why it was important to reveal a modern discussion around property rights with consumer privacy is also the take from Cameron Russell on today's podcast from Fordham Law School and the executive director for the Center on Law and Information Policy. Both Cameron and Brittany join my colleague and CEO of Mouth Media Network, Rob Sanchez, to really examine how the identity of American privacy and American identity takes shape in a modern digital landscape when many of us don't even want that identity to be revealed to our peers. Knowing exactly what bars we like to go to through our favorite ride-sharing networks every Saturday at 2 a.m. might be a little too personal for our colleagues to know, but we kind of expect that in this 21st century that other partners, other parties, and other marketing companies are taking that data, packaging it, repackaging it, and repurposing it in a multitude of ways. So for many, it may not be any surprise that data privacy seems like a non-existent concept. But then take a look at the European Union. They just passed brand new compliance regulations known as the GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation, redefining new compliance standards for individuals living in the EU, which redefines the notion of informed consent, the portability of data, 
and frankly, the concept of the right to be forgotten or otherwise your information being scrubbed of online and not really entering into your search results. That very concept of a distinction of how people view their own personal identity and the ability to hide the identity if they so want to is something that certain nations and certain continents have been far faster and more progressive to act upon than others. Look no further than the congressional hearings between Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and the joint Senate committees in which numerous senators, sad to say, didn't even really have an understanding of how Facebook works. So how can we have a 21st century debate around what privacy means, how what data looks like, what that protection looks like, if there's not actually a firm understanding of how those platforms work or there's not a firm understanding of how those platforms can be exploited? How do you capture that sense of all of the terms and conditions that every platform should be reflecting to its users? And frankly, how do you encourage the users to pay attention of what that privacy may look like unbeknownst to their use of those platforms? It's not easy, but unpacking this starts with revealing why it's important to even address the vulnerabilities to begin with. In this incredibly special episode, Brittany Kaiser, Rob Sanchez, Cameron Russell, the University of Fordham Law School, and Cambridge Analytica whistleblower mentalities to really understand why privacy may in fact be dead. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Hi, I'm Rob Sanchez. I'm the CEO of Mouth Media Network, and I'm here with Cameron Russell. Uh, Cameron, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, hi. Thanks for having me here. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, I'm the executive director of Fordham Law School's Center on Law and Information Policy CLIP, and I also teach um, information privacy law there at Fordham. And uh, we are here today with Brittany Kaiser. Brittany, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit about your background as well? Thank you for having me here, Rob. Uh, I have been working in data and politics for about a decade, starting on the 2007-2008 Obama campaign through to recently just finishing three and a half years at Cambridge Analytica, the data analytics firm known for our involvement in the Brexit and Trump for President campaigns. I recently left the firm and came out as a whistleblower on the way that the data industry has developed in such a parasitic way. And I'm very interested in contributing to how we can change things, not just legislation and regulation, but also the social and legal contracts that we have with the companies that collect our personal data. So things have been pretty low key for you recently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So speaking of what's happening right now, it's, it's an interesting time. Uh, we had it I would say a spike in attention on privacy. Um, there was a lot of things revealed about Cambridge, a lot of things revealed about Facebook, a lot of things revealed about all of privacy across all of companies. And so there's this moment in time where we can have a conversation that's different than the one that we've been having for a long time. And um, so I'd like to start just briefly with an acknowledgement of what has had has happened. Um, rather than spending the time today talking and focusing on that. So, Brittany, I'd love to just have you give us a really brief recap of your experience over the last couple of weeks 
um, couple months. And then uh, let's dive into what the real conversation is about, which is the future of privacy and, and the law. Of course. So I suppose it's only about a month ago that one whistleblower who used to work at Cambridge Analytica and the SCL group, Chris Wiley, came out and said that Cambridge Analytica may have possessed Facebook data of tens of millions of individuals in the United States and elsewhere much longer than they purported to do so. Now, that was one of many revelations, but it started to get me thinking about everything that I experienced while I was at the company. I realized not only had Facebook only followed up with us seven months after we were no longer meant to have those data sets, but when our chief data officer told Facebook that we had deleted those data sets, there was absolutely no follow-up. I was completely shocked at the lack of due diligence for a company that used to be worth $500 billion until Cambridge Analytica <laughs> former employees started coming out and talking about it. But I started to think a little bit harder about everything that I know about the way that data is collected and used and how that relates to the current terms and conditions that people agree to when they use these platforms. And also the types of laws that currently exist in the United States and whether they are sufficient enough to protect individuals. Since I've been living in Europe for about 13 years, I'm very well aware of how much easier it is to abuse power and exploit individuals in the United States than it is in other countries. So I think right now there's a huge opportunity to have a conversation about how our laws need to change and how the contracts that we agree to when we use big technology platforms like Facebook and Google, how this can be changed to better protect individuals, to give us more rights over our property as personal data could be seen as our property, and at bare minimum, transparency into what data sets are collected about us and how they're used. Thank you. Um, I'm going to just kick off the conversation uh, and go from there with a um, a reflection from our host, Fikra Meyer from American Enough. Uh, he was talking about um, right now the American identity is primarily online. Um, right now, we've grown up in this economy as a country where we've paid for a lot of free services with our privacy. Um, and we've been pouring our information out into the world to government, to individual apps, to um, every single time we swipe our credit card. And so there's this question now of what are the boundaries of platforms and what are the boundaries of identity um, and where can we go? I mean, we've seen data breaches from the Office of Personal Management and we've seen data breaches from uh, Neiman Marcus recently and so on. So there's this interesting moment in, of time where we're starting to pay the the price for the way that we've uh, been sharing our information. Cameron, I'd love to start with you and, and then Brittany, if you want to hop in as well and just start with that conversation about where the platform and identity and where we go from there. Do you remember like four or five years ago when this there was this privacy is dead stuff? Remember, like, oh, privacy's dead. You know, it's it's 
the cat's out of the bag, you know, we're helpless. You know, it turns out like people care about it, right? And the more you find out, the more people care about it. It depends on context. It depends on the details. You know, so you were saying, Brittany, you know, the legal regimes are deficient, right? We have this notice and choice regime where you go to a website, an app, you read a privacy policy, or you don't read a privacy policy, you have the opportunity to do so. And then theoretically that you consent to those terms, you know, by continuing on with the website or app. Um, we're reliant upon these apps and websites and large tech companies to kind of as um, custodians of our data, right? So without the legal regime, we're kind of in this self-regulatory um, corporate type of um, governance model where we're just just trusting that, that the websites and companies do what's right. Um, but it's yeah, hard to look be behind the curtain, becomes, yeah. right? It's hard to look behind the curtain. If you read the privacy policy, it's so general, you won't know anything anyway, right? It's, I mean, what would the privacy policy have had to say for Facebook to, to give sufficient notice as to this particular type of use from Cambridge Analytica, right? Can you imagine? Okay, so if it said that with that specificity, and then it, it had to describe all of the various complex things that are happening in terms of data sharing, uses, analytics, right? It'd be a bazillion pages long, right? So obviously this is not working. Um, so to answer your question, Rob, it's we're relying upon private sector um, actors to safeguard it without an adequate legal regime. Um, the data practices are so complex Right. It's if even if you're taking, you know, the viewpoint of the private sector actor, I mean, what would you need to do to describe these things? Um, and then from the user's perspective, you know, understanding them, the complexities, it's just impossible. Right. To even consent to these things, even if you were informed of them. So we certainly need some limitations on uses, I think. You know, we need to have some boundaries as to as to what's acceptable and what's not. And I think that needs to come through some type of legal mechanism um, and not some self-regulatory, you know, goodwill on behalf of corporate entities. Yeah, I'd like to jump in there, especially when you mention informed consent. So I'd really love for Mark Zuckerberg to look at the data on how many people actually read his terms and conditions. I'm sure they're tracking everything. They might as well be tracking that. Uh, how many people click on it? How many people read it? You know, if a very small percentage of his users have ever even looked at the terms and conditions, <clears throat> I, I know our legal system says that it's informed consent if you click yes, but I would argue otherwise. So that's that's one thing. People aren't reading the terms and conditions that are there even though those terms are not sufficient. But how can we change those terms and conditions to better protect an individual? I think it's going to be harder to argue that there are certain limitations on uses that would be in there by default. But I do think there needs to be a transparency on a permission-based structure where an individual can decide for what uses their data could be given for, right? So I'm... I'm not sure that too many people would want to continue to share their data if they weren't going to be compensated in any way for it. So if we're looking under um, a framework of property law, which rights to property seem to be the, the number one most protected rights under U.S. law in many other countries, more than human rights, more than anything else you can imagine. So if we're going to talk about our data as our property with the hopes that you know our, our law could 
protect our property above all other things, then not only should we have transparency as to what our property would be used for, but we would also have to give consent as to the further uses of that property. We would also be uh, able to claim monetary compensation for the use of our property. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense to me. How about you? Yeah, in terms of the consent models, right? it's really neat now. Um, with the general data protection regulation, you're living in Europe for what did you say, 13 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that goes into effect on May 25th and multinational companies are freaking out because they're going to have to implement it if they're targeting European citizens. And so that particular legal regime is trying to do exactly what you've described in the notice and consent end, right? Describing data practices um, with more specificity, with granularity, right? And having unbundled consent models where you can't just swoop up everyone's consent for a host of different things and you have to break them out. Now, the clarity on that is not quite there and people are having that discussion, but we have an actual model that's trying to do what we're talking about, but we don't have in the U.S., but U.S. entities are certainly affected by it. Um, so, In terms of data ownership, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Um well, tangible fixed medium, right? Right. Okay. So, um, it, if if it's like property, is it like a chattel? Is it a thing? Is it a book? Is it something yeah. that you can physically convey? Is this a copyright where I have the ability to control it getting sliced up and repurposed? Right. Uh, is is it more like an intent? Is it more like a digital music file that's capable of infinite duplication, right? Mm-hmm. And having to track that in some way. In some way, yes, it is. But in another way, the data collect the potential for data collection and capturing one's personal information. We all have cell phones. You're just walking around, right? Snap a photo of someone, right? Then you can link that through an app to facial recognition technology. Then you can, you know, the facial recognition to some type of social media account, right? So it's like in that way different. So it's kind of um, it's interesting to to think about how you would um, track it and what type of how you would be able to to keep up with with where one's personal information is going in order to monetize it, right? Collecting societies in terms of music, ASCAP, right? CSAC, that's what they do, right? They collect royalties for downstream uses of one's you know, music, yeah. right? So what, what would be the, the vehicle for that type of thing with respect to an intangible form of personal information? The other, so you had mentioned a little bit about monetization. And one of the questions I have there is that, um, our economy has been built on the actual information being the commodity you're paying for a lot of services with because of a future monetization stream. If you start to change that, then cost of goods becomes more transparent, but it becomes more transparent, right? And so we start to have to look at, okay, what is the actual real cost of a subscription service for a lot of basic things instead of, um, okay, my email's free. Well, it's free because they can learn everything about me. Um, if I'm going to be paying for that, can I afford that? Um, we're at this interesting point in time where the actual spending power of Americans is declining and has been for a while. Um, and so we've been paying for things for free, kind of offsetting that. So now what happens? And then how does that interact with local taxes? How does that interact with? So there's a lot of, um, I think, long-term policy questions that boil out of this idea of payment. Um, now that we're addicted, yeah, right. How do we, yeah, get off the dependency? Right. So this actually brings up: is this a public utility or is this an actual commodity? And I, I think that that's also an interesting conversation to dive into, 
data is what's keeping a, a lot of our society functioning. Um, should it be regulated in that way? Is it a, a flow of information the same way we have the flow of electricity? Well, I definitely think that there's a few different government agencies that are going to debate this fiercely <laughs> for the right to regulate it themselves. Um, it's hard to say whether uh, in the United States that Facebook could be considered a utility, but I could definitely say in many countries around the world it definitely is. Uh, for instance, one of my colleagues was telling me yesterday that in Egypt they actually refer to the Internet as Facebook. That's mm. yeah. <laughs> their main wow. outlet for uh, sharing and and consuming information. So maybe in in a country where we are right now, where we were probably exposed to at least, um, you know, Netscape Navigator and Internet Explorer <laughs> before the Facebook as our main way of interacting with the Internet. Uh, it's going to be hard to think of it as a utility just yet, but I still don't know too many people that don't use it as a platform. I myself have been on it since it was invented <laughs> um, you know I went to high school with one of the co-founders I've always been a fan of Facebook and I am also quite against the delete Facebook campaign because I wouldn't do it myself even though I'm a harsh critic right now of the way that Facebook operates I think it has the ability to reform and continue to be what Mark Zuckerberg says that it should be which is a tool to for good to keep people more connected so could it become a utility and be more regulated in that way? Uh, perhaps. And I think that if we're going to see it more as a utility and as a social good, then Facebook needs to think about monetization and the way that individuals could be compensated for their data usage. It doesn't have to be huge. Um, it can be small, uh, but with the amount of money that they make from advertising, which is basically just a use of individual data in order to target people where they make more and more money on a daily basis, why can't the individuals that are being targeted share in that monetization structure if they so choose? If you don't want to share your data and you don't want to see those advertisements, then fine, you are not going to be compensated. But if you choose to do so, then there needs to be some sort of structure available for that. And it doesn't have to just be through Facebook. Individuals can decide to share their data with pharmaceutical companies in order to find new medicines. You know, I, a lot of cancer research organizations and big charities that, that work on, on these types of issues are constantly lacking enough data. Yeah. And, you know, to go out and find everybody that suffers from certain diseases um, without compensating them, they just participate in a medical trial every now and then. I suppose yeah. that's one option, but... We can well, do better. That's an interesting one in that um, because it's so difficult to share medical data, you actually end up with skewed medical treatment in our country where the average person in a trial tends – like on in a psychological trial tends to be a young white male college-age student and you're building all the profiles of the rest of the, the United States off of – that narrow slice because that's who you have access to in the research trials. So the idea of sharing for medicine is a really interesting one and, and very complicated by HIPAA and a lot of our uh, rules around um, the, the personal ownership of medical data. Uh, so 
There's so yeah. much we could talk about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let's choose a path. <laughs> so, so I'm not on Facebook. I've never been on Facebook, and I don't get invited to any parties. Seriously. <laughs> um, but so is it a utility? Facebook, I just don't. I don't think it's that societally valuable in its current form. I think the outlet for exchange of information is integral to any type of society. But this particular platform, I don't think that we need it to yeah. survive for mankind to survive. Yeah. Now, the Internet, I do think it's a utility and necessity, and we could think about it that way. In terms of personal information, and you know, I'm from North Carolina and not north of France – but you know, I, it's European idea of it being a fundamental human right to have a right to privacy, the, you know, the right to autonomy. If you want to get you know nerd out in privacy land with philosophy, the right to you know control oneself, right, mm -hmm. to control one's information. It's really kind of trying to fit these types of vehicles for reform into these philosophical packages. Um, but I just you know. Especially of late, you know, the, the discourse has gotten pretty vile, I hear, on Facebook, especially with the with the elections, most recent elections. You know, I think we need these types of outlets for information exchange. But if, if Facebook doesn't survive in perpetuity, then I think we'll still survive as humankind. I'd like to respond to a couple different things that you've said um, with, with – with one topic, um, which is that you've you've talked about the the kind of higher level philosophy of autonomy and rights to privacy, but also um, how are we going to track where our data is gone and used? So I've worked in blockchain technology mm -hmm. for about a year now, and that is one solution um, to the problem. So not only would you be able to secure your personal data, but you would be entering into a smart contract whenever you wanted to license that out. And that would be encrypted for usage only for the uses that you had already agreed to, and that would be self-executing. So your data would no longer be available for ad additional uses. And you'd have after. a data trail. Exactly. So that would be trackable, traceable, and you would be able to retain your privacy because your digital identity would be encrypted and no one could make decisions on your behalf. You would have to consent to every single usage. It also makes it quite easy in order to plug in your personal data to platforms around the world. So if you want to enter into a smart contract with Facebook or with Google or with, you know, a cancer research charity, whatever it happens to be, um, then then that's, you know, a simple solution. And obviously, we've only gotten to a point over the past couple of months where blockchain technology is at a point where we can start testing these things. And that's the conversation that I've been having with some of the you know top executives at Facebook and, and Google, for instance. And how can we start to, on a small scale, see if this works? Um, you know, giving individuals a property-based structure for transparency and permission, portability of your data, so you have the right to delete, which is much more popular in Europe than it is here in the United States. You know, and then being able to make use of of the benefits of this own data for for you as a person instead of for anyone that can exploit you of your property. So a quick question on that. How does the right to be forgotten integrate with a technology that's about permanent and long term 
uh, recording of information. You can delete the profile, but I can know everywhere that profile is used. And one of the the issues with the internet, of course, is that nothing is ever gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I'm kind of interested in in thinking about. Um, one side is we talk about selling data and so on. One of the issues I think that came up with Cambridge is that once that data is acquired, it doesn't matter if you delete it um, because you already have the statistical model that you're building from it in the first place. Yes. Um, and so, in fact, we're developing an app and we didn't want to hold PII ourselves. So the way that we designed the system was literally just outsource the model building and only use the models inside Mm -hmm. so we don't know anything about the individual but it doesn't matter because we can still you know interact with the individual at at the aggregate level Mm -hmm. um so i'm wondering like on on that side once you've given permission does it matter and and what does the right to be forgotten even mean in in the in the future of data as it relates to the internet yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you, the use of you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning techniques, I mean, you already have the model built, right? So the deletion would, would not be effective. Um, yeah, I, I think you're spot on. So we're just... <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a it's hmm. a really difficult one um, yeah. because I've still been wondering this myself just because there seems to be no proof at the moment whether that Facebook data set was kept by Cambridge Analytica or not, or the thousands of other companies that likely had the exact same data or more. Because Cambridge Analytica is a very small company, yes, with powerful and controversial clients, but very small in comparison to probably most of the companies that were able to scrape individuals' Facebook data. So how many companies around the world still have that data set and have been using it for what purposes? We don't know. So the crux of the issue, I think, we're honing in on is not the deletion. It's the use, the aggregation of the data, and the uses right, seem yeah. to me to be the points that we should focus on in terms of you know, some types of reforms, rules, yeah. guidelines, limitations, something. So one question on that side that um, I think the Zuckerberg interview kind of really, uh, really showcased this really well. Lawmakers are from the wrong generation – in many cases, they don't have the right mindset. They don't have the background to be able to have meaningful conversations and really intelligent discourse about these issues. So how do we build a legal framework? And um, how do we build a legal framework in a society where, frankly, lobbying power uh, matters tremendously in our lawmaking? Um, and so if, if Facebook is setting the rules for Facebook, um, that ben- to benefit Facebook, and uh, like at at what point um, do the does the benefit to people matter or even get represented in that conversation, and then where do we go from there? I I do think that there there are two conversations being had in parallel right now, which is do these technology giants want to reform on their own, and accept new terms and conditions and recognize the rights of their users more than they do at the moment. And are our legislators and regulators well-informed enough or open-minded enough to start drafting legislation that really addresses the problem? I've been having both of these conversations on a day-to-day basis for many weeks now, and I was lucky enough to have a few of the senatorial teams um, reach out to me so that I could speak to the senators and help craft some of the questions for Mark Zuckerberg which was great, but 
a few of the questions that then when I gave them <laughs> were, were, were asked. And a lot of the people that I didn't speak with uh, asked questions that didn't get to the root of the problem. Yeah. So there are some of those senators that are currently working on draft legislation, and I've been invited down to D.C. to help advise on that. And I think that we need active engagement from anybody in this space that has the expertise to advise, because in the end, these uh, members of Congress and regulators are going to need the advice of people who understand how the data industry works and how personal data has been used and abused for at least a decade now. So it's really difficult to pinpoint what the rule should be when the the legislators, the general public, has they don't have any transparency as to what the data practices are. And the industry has a really natural counter argument, which is these things are proprietary, right? These models are proprietary. We can't tell you. There's a whole host of issues of using algorithms in court proceedings now yep. and being able to have due process and to challenge the way in which this thing was built or the decisions, it's made, the output that it's creating, <laughs> yeah. and then saying, okay, well, the software, the algorithms, these are proprietary, right? And that bumps yeah. up against the due process, right? Within you a, see all the time that proceeding. And so, algorithms basically entrench existing bias. Yeah. Uh, they they don't counteract it at all. So yeah, that's well. Game. Interestingly enough, one of my clients while I was at Cambridge Analytica was a law firm, where I designed a project that was meant to show how data science could be used as valid evidence in court proceedings. So we were undertaking research. It had to do with intellectual property. Um, we were undertaking research so that we could understand approximately how many people in this country would have bought or not have bought a particular item due to this one component of the item and using the extrapolation of that model uh, estimate how much money was won or lost over this particular uh, piece. So uh, <laughs> the use of data science in in the courtroom uh, really could take uh, the data conversation to a whole other level. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I once heard a data scientist say, algorithms don't discriminate. Okay, you asked me to build an algorithm to do X, right? To maximize the you know, profit for this particular commodity or whatever, right? Maximize the um, you know, utilization of a certain target market, right? So that's what I did. I built the algorithm to do that. I didn't build it to be discriminatory. Now, mm -hmm. of course, there's discriminatory impacts of them. They could be built in a discriminatory way. Mm -hmm. It's possible, okay, with the data points. But it also could be built in a non-discriminatory way that produces a discriminatory output. So what do you do then? It's a very complex issue. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually feel really strongly about this. <laughs> uh, and it's because I'm always asked, you know, Cambridge Analytica, were your models um, proven to be more accurate than others? How did Cambridge Analytica know that, you know, Senator Ted Cruz or Donald Trump was going to win the election when nobody else could predict that? And, uh, you know, as a as a little bit of an anecdote, you have the um, data scientists and digital leaders of Hillary Clinton's campaign talking about how they've always wanted to work for Hillary Clinton their whole lives and they were kind of blinded by bias where the individuals that worked on the um, the algorithms for Senator Cruz and Donald Trump are Europeans that were not Democrats or Republicans. We 
had almost no Americans working on those algorithms. So uh, those were PhD-holding data scientists that looked at this completely from an unbiased science experiment type of way. You know, here's the data. I'm going to build an algorithm. And yes, I would say that algorithm building is both a science and an art form, which is why it's so easy to incorporate bias into those algorithms. But it was quite obvious that uh, a lot of the data scientists on the Democrat side were not looking at the data correctly. And if they were, they would have not have come out with numbers like Hillary Clinton is 92% likely to win, 92% likely to win this <laughs> election. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of insane how off people were when we were working with the same data sets. Hey everyone, this is Vikram Iyer with American Enough, and in just a few moments, you'll hear a bit more from Brittany and Cameron as they unpack how data, law, and privacy have been intersecting in different countries and continents abroad to keep pace with the rapid data spill. Before that, I just want to thank all of you for tuning in to the exciting episodes that we've had to date. We've had an incredible journey talking with everybody from CIA spokespeople to candidates for mayor to presidential operatives and speechwriters, to even Michelle Obama's former chief of staff, to today, those behind whistleblowing some of the most important issues of our time in crafting and protecting a sense of identity. As we continue to unpack what America's face, narrative, and frankly, perspective looks like in these tumultuous times of heated cultural, political, and policy debates, we just want to thank you all for tuning in and to make sure that as we continue to deliver these groundbreaking conversations week after week, that you take a moment and subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you listen, whether that's on Google Play, iTunes, or really wherever you pod. And if you're not sure where to listen, make sure to just go online to the AmericanEnoughPodcast.com website and stream all episodes all day, every day for your listening pleasure. Thank you so much again. And now, more great show. So the, the data set is an interesting question, um, and I think it ties a little bit into the personal side, too. So um, I'm somebody where most people guess I'm a Democrat or a liberal or whatever, and uh, I don't even know what I would describe myself as, and and I don't share any information about my political views with anyone, really, um, although I, I like to tackle it from the legal side. Um, and so... Uh, what I find interesting is I tend to skew data sets, right? Uh, people like me were in an unknown. And I think as you're building algorithms, the unknowns, um, that becomes potentially damaging. And so one of the questions I have around this idea of the ability not to be tracked and the ability to hide your data is that that itself is a choice that impacts the data set and is part of the data. So if we know we have information on 20% of the U.S., um, 80% is chosen not to be tracked. That says something about the 80% and it also says something about the 20% and it also skews the algorithm. Um, so when we're talking about the use of data on the government side um, and the use of versus the use of data by a private company, I'm interested a little bit there too. Is, is it a form of taxation for the government to be able to track us? Uh, and where, like, where do we go with that? Um, I mean, we need to have national security and law and order, yeah. right? Um, it's 
right politically, it's shown to be a winning argument that you know anything in the interest of national security and law and order is tend to win out lately. Um, so the government needs some ability to maintain law and order, right? Now, the level of transparency we should have as to how and the extent to which the government is tracking us is also on this continuum, right, where there's some things that need to be covert, right? So in whistleblowing in the context of government surveillance, right, we've had lots of instances of this, right? Um, there, there are things like the location of Osama bin Laden at a certain time when the mission is happening, right? Like virtually everyone would say, okay, the government needs to keep this particular thing secret from us until yeah. they can achieve their objective, right? Then you have multi nefarious, you know, mass um, surveillance of everyone for no specific purpose, just in the event to prevent some unknown hypothetical attack, mm-hmm. right? So, so, you know, in the whistleblowing in that context, right? So you have, the the public might want to know, but should the public know? And the, that's there's some type of social responsibility on behalf of the government whistleblower. We rely upon one the whistleblower, right, to make the right calculus in that respect. Two the journalist who's you know publishing that information as another gatekeeper for this public, you know, the publication of some type of thing that the government would prefer was kept secret. But I think it's just on this. Um, very complex, large continuum. And, okay, so going one step further here from on the continuum side, um, the U.S., right now we've been talking about the law here, and as you had mentioned earlier, GDPR uh, coming soon, and um, far sooner than I think. I think Facebook publicly said they're not ready. Um, so, uh, I'm sure they're not. Yep. <laughs> um, and so we've, we've got that change now in, in the EU, but the question, um, really becomes in my head, what's local, what's, uh, statewide, what's government wide, what's nationwide, and then what's global and how does, uh, an individual's data function in this multi-regime, uh, world and where do we like how do we deal with uh, the integration of a U.S. policy with overseas? And we had the um, Privacy Shield. I, I guess it was like I uh, can't remember who it was, but it was Ireland-based data. Might have this also been the Facebook. Supreme Court case yeah. that was recently dismissed as moot. Yeah, because of the recent federal legislation. Yeah, and the federal legislation basically said even if your servers are overseas, we're considering it U.S. Uh, data. So. That I think also kind of. So the prior your prior question I think is the really cool one. I, this is the one I was, I was really wanting to talk yeah. about. Okay, so so the future, the yeah. future of privacy. Okay, so working backwards, like to turn your question around. Yeah. Whether it's whether it's European, regional, whether it's you know, federal, state, local, you know, the internet is global. Okay, so existence on the internet touches everywhere. We have legal regimes, internet jurisdiction, and principles about you know the effects doctrine and this type of thing to try to determine which laws apply to what internet activity, right? Yeah. But this seems to be the perfect storm for some type of action uh, from the U.S. 
on privacy. And the perfect storm is one, GDPR implementation and the necessity for multinational companies not located in Europe to comply with it. Two, this Facebook controversy with Cambridge Analytica, which is mainstream, right? Un normal people can understand it because they were targeted, affected, and also political, right? It also has this political element that fires people up and upsets people. So I think, I'm hopeful, right, that it shows people that privacy is not dead. People care about privacy, right? It sparks some type of action because something's needed in the Wild West of app development platforms, the use of APIs, plugins to APIs, right? I think this might be the time to strike while the iron's hot. I agree with you completely. If we don't make use of the momentum we have now, when are we going to? So I I agree with you as well. It's not it's not about one jurisdiction or the other because the internet is everywhere. So that's why I've started talking in the framework of the terms and conditions that we agree to when we use these technology platforms. Because within the terms and conditions, no matter no matter under what laws they're governed, we can still put through explicit uh, you know transparency and permission based structures. And that's also where we can set out where you might know that your data is being monetized for certain purposes. And we can find a way for that to be shared with the users. I also, I don't know, I would say that if we're talking about, you know, what we can learn from Europe versus America, which you brought up earlier, Rob, I think that it's important to make a point that the United States is one of the only countries, well, the only country that actually produces this much data where we are by default opt-in. Most individuals in the United States do not know that there is something to opt out of. Our data can be collected and monetized and sold and licensed for whatever purposes unless we opt out of it. I mean, that's completely insane. In Europe, it's by default opt out. So you have to get individuals to opt in for their data to be collected and held. And in countries like Germany, then used for what specific purpose? I know because, you know, I worked on a pitch to do political work in Germany and we had to figure out how we could collect and use data. And in the terms and conditions, we would have literally had to say exactly the political communications that we were going to use that for. So if we're going to collect your data to talk to you about environmental policy and law or about healthcare, we had to tell you that. And you had to think about it in advance at least. Exactly. Right. You had to at least, it had to cross your mind. That, <laughs> yeah. Why am I doing this? What value does it have? Yes. There's this whole concept in the GDPR of a privacy impact assessment, which is built on kind of the environmental impact assessment thing mm -hmm. from, I think the early 80s or late 70s, right? Like, what are we trying to do here? And what's the impact on the environment of, of doing this particular thing and taking that model and using it in the context of privacy? Exactly. That's, that's, that's basically what it is. Just having a requirement some, that there's some thought given to what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, what you're going to do with it, when you're going to delete it. And we all know why Germany has those laws, because mm -hmm. it's the country where the government or the Stasi has abused people's data in order to target them in a way that was ultimately incredibly destructive. Yeah. Um, so the thought that in the rest of the world and every other country that hasn't had their data explicitly used 
in this way to hunt people down. The fact that we're not questioning how abusive the use of our data has become, I think, is a problem. And I think we've finally gotten to the point where we can admit to ourselves, you know, know that the government isn't putting us in political prison camps, but... It they can to. use it. We for, shouldn't wait uh, until something bad happens. We shouldn't well, wait until an, it gets that bad to do something about it. This and, is an interesting and, question for the U.S., <laughs> though, because we are we are probably the nation most suited for putting our head in the sand. Um, we did put people in politically motivated concentration camps during World War II, and we still have one percent of our population behind bars. Yeah, and, let's not forget that. And it, yeah, like we we actually put more people in prison than any other place. And if you actually run the numbers on the imprisonment, it's actually based on how likely convictions are to occur, which introduces bias into the thing. You you literally are compensating prosecutors for making data-driven decisions on who to prosecute. And it's it's a very, like, we're great at pretending that we don't have those problems. But mm-hmm. in reality, we probably, are, like, yes, we didn't explicitly try to kill people with it, but we're still one of the few um, nations with the ability to kill people. Uh, we're a huge human rights abuser. And so, okay, now what? Um, we also are one of the leading uh, producers of data, as you were saying. How is that being used? Um, and I think that <laughs> you have to have those conversations in, out in the open. And you have to admit where we've been as a company, uh, as a country. Well, now it's it's a... It's going to take money out of someone's pocket to have regulation, and that's <laughs> yeah. always difficult to do. Exactly. And we this concept of mission creep. Okay, so this is where you know we're just going to collect as much data as possible because we don't know what to do with it now, but it's valuable, and we'll figure out some valuable thing to monet way to monetize yeah. it, right? And so we'll just keep it all forever, and we'll see what happens, right? When the borders. Um, bankruptcy happened, right? I think the the most valuable thing was the real estate, but the second most valuable, you know, asset in the bankruptcy was the data that you had the little fob, and they know what books you you bought yeah. and all this stuff, so that offset the debt in the bankruptcy, right? Yeah. But like this kind of the mission creep. Now, one thing we have the and you mentioned, I think, at the very beginning of of the podcast, uh, the cyber attacks, right? So the threat of cyber attack now is a deterrent to having a honeypot of data, at least, right? A natural, financially driven, market driven deterrent to keeping everything all the time forever. Yeah. Right. Because what in this privacy impact assessment concept, right? Why do we have this? Because we better have a reason for it. Otherwise we have all of this valuable information that could be hacked and then have that, the, you know, the, the, the monetary um, result. Yeah. Of having these data breaches is, is the Yahoo potential merger we saw there. Right, um, numbers there. I find it, I find it interesting that you talk about uh, organizations just collecting and collecting data in perpetuity and just storing it regardless of whether they they have anything to do with it. Because my entire time at Cambridge Analytica was spent going to companies or governments or uh, political parties and candidates to assess this data that they've been collecting in perpetuity and doing nothing with and telling them what was possible. So I'm very well aware of exactly how these data sets can be used and abused and the amount of data that exists, you know, sitting there waiting for someone to use it for good or, or not. And in this kind of invisible ecosystem of data, 
you have the edge actors who actually at least have contact with a data subject, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Theoretically. Yes. Okay. Then you have this kind of invisible world of data brokers in the middle of just, they're just shuffling information around yep. with, I mean, they're definitely the more, the better, right? More clients. We don't know who's going to want what for, you know, for what purpose? For sure. Yeah. Right. So that, I mean, this, you kind of have to tackle these issues at these different points in this ecosystem, right? What are the rules for edge actors? Cause they can at least have some type of consent model. Right. With, with, you yeah. know, in terms of control. And then what are the rules in this kind of world of data brokers where there's, you know, maybe no contact with 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 the data subject at all? And so. I, I'm so glad that you said data brokers because um, people keep on talking about Facebook and Google as as the main problem. Well, Facebook and Google don't sell data. Yeah, they don't sell data. They, they sell access to yeah. targeting people with that data. But there are a lot of big data vendors that do sell your personal data. They sell the data about you. Yeah. Experian, InfoGroup, Magellan, yep. Labels Anyone and who's Lists. ever gotten a house or a car or registered a business. Yeah. So, okay. So in the U.S., we have this Fair Credit Reporting Act. It covers consumer reporting agencies, right? Producing a consumer report, right? Okay, so these are defined terms in a statutory structure. So we actually have something, but it's so limited. There's so many data brokers that are not, you know, selling ins uh, information for purposes of evaluating of eligibility for insurance, employment, or credit, right? Yeah. So there's so we have some regulation, Equifax, right? With yeah. that's coming into more public discourse because of the breach. But then we have nothing, basically nothing, for a large world of this of data brokers. And the interesting thing is that uh, this is kind of the tools outpacing. Um, there were natural barriers early on in that it was difficult to match data sets. We've solved that to a large degree with AI and the computing power that we currently mm -hmm. have. Um, so a long time ago in a different life, I interned for the Southern District of New York. And one of the things that I was working on was the struggle um, that started occurring because of the ability to access digital records faster. So before you had to go to the courtroom, you had to go to the courthouse, use a local computer, it would access the data, you would get information about cases, but it was the barrier was your actual time to go to the courthouse. And then as that went away, all of a sudden you had externalities from the access to the data. Well, now we're stripping a lot of the barriers away on all of this data. And so having a Visa or a MasterCard um, record of sales matched against a, a Samsung records of customers matched against a Facebook account with whatever or, mug and, or a mugshot. Yeah. You can tell anything about anybody. Um, so the, the area that I find interesting is, uh, is that COPA and the protection of children, because I think that's one of the few places where we do a, a fairly good job about, um, actually talking about this. And, um, I designed a, a backend for Scholastic working on COPA compliance. It took six months to actually just design the data structure to make sure that I couldn't find individual people. Um, so you start to look at, okay, how do you take, we've got COPA, we've got the uh, Credit Act, we've got like pieces. Um, what can we learn from those and how do we put them back together for everything else that's in the middle? That's a really good point, actually, um, because 
I remember at Cambridge one time being approached by, you know, a university that was interested in us being able to target and recruit students, but we were not allowed to hold data on individuals under the age of 18. This is something that Mark Zuckerberg has been highly criticized over because Facebook actually fought back against some of the protections that our legislators were trying to put in against his under 18 Facebook users and yeah. how that data could be collected and used. And he still doesn't have some good answers for some of those questions, actually. So yeah. I think that the protections that are given to children, a few of those protections could maybe be extended to the rest of us. Yeah, <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> right now we have, I mean, that's what Europe's trying to do. And right now we have these things that target particular actors, whether you're a consumer reporting agency, right? Whether the data subject is a child, um, whether you're a financial services company, you know, the same data point is not protected if you give it to WebMD, but is protected if you tell your doctor under HIPAA. Yeah. Right. So th th these types of regimes make sense now, especially, you know, when the ability to share information is so network connected and digitized. Um, we are about at the end, so I want to just give each of you a chance for a final thought, and then we can kind of wrap up. Um, but Cameron, I'd love to start with you. I think I'm just hopeful. I think that um, the public's ready for some type of, of action. Um, I think industry's motivated now, um, especially the well-established tech companies. I mean, if you already have a presence – you know, you're already there. The momentum shifting towards this, you know, I think industry may be ready to get on board for something. Lawmakers are ready for it because there's more public. Um, there's a public outcry for some type of reform. Um, you know, privacy is not dead. And five years ago, I, my students, it's hard for me to convince them of that. Right. Um, I was an old fogey. Right. <laughs> so so I'm just very hopeful and and I think that that we'll get something. I would second that in saying I am incredibly hopeful. I would love anyone that's interested in these topics to check out my petition on change.org slash own your data, where I've explicitly asked Mark Zuckerberg to respond to me by the 30th of April on his interest level in changing the terms and conditions that Facebook uses to govern their relationship with their users. Are we going to give transparency to the 2.2 billion people on Facebook of how much data you actually collect from us and for what purposes you allow that data to be used for targeting us? I I hope so. <laughs> I guess um, I'm in the privacy is dead camp a little bit where <laughs> uh, based on what on the earlier discussion of models, um, from my perspective, it's kind of too late for us um, in many uh, respects. However, we can do something for our children. Um, and so I don't think you'll ever pull back from where we went. And this is kind of the, the risk of new technology is overextension and running too far. I mean, think about your uranium urinal cakes, um, back in the day, like the, the actual radiation <laughs> that came off of radium watches. Um, so I think that we've kind of, from my perspective, we hurt ourselves with data. Um, in the way that we've approached it and we're responsive legal culture. So now it's time to fix that damage, but we're fixing it for our kids, not for us. 
Um, yeah, so thank you to Cameron Russell for joining us, and thank you, Brittany Kaiser, for giving us your time. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you, Brittany. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.